The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, get out your TLA glossary, because here comes TFS for ALM. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 477 with guest Chris Menegay, recorded live Wednesday, February 18th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD in RTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Teller, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who will never again buy anything from DiscountSharkRepellent.com, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut. Hey, today we're going to play a show that we recorded in February, and we've been sitting on it for just the right moment, and that right moment is today. So without any further ado, let's roll the interview that we did with Chris Menegay on Team System. Our guest on this show today is Chris Menegay. He is the Vice President of Consulting for Notion Solutions Incorporated, a consulting services firm specializing in software development process and visual studio team system. He's been working with Visual Studio Team System full-time since late 2004. Chris has obtained a broad understanding of information technology by sharing best practices with the client companies he's worked with over the past 10 years. As a consultant, he's served in many different roles in the software development process. He's been a project manager, analyst, architect, developer, and tester. This broad background has given him insight into not only the technical challenges that face software projects, but the procedural challenges as well. Chris has worked with a variety of companies, ranging in sizes from 50 employees up to Fortune 500 companies. He's written white papers and articles on Team System for MSDN and MSDN Magazine. Chris is a Microsoft MVP for Team System, a Microsoft Regional Director, and a member of the INETA Speakers Bureau. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Carl. Good talking to you. Good talking to you. So we're talking about a topic near and dear to your heart today, Chris, Team Foundation Services. And uh, I know that you've done quite a lot with this, and Team Systems certainly has been through quite a few revs, and we're eagerly anticipating the next rev. What, uh, what's, the, what's the latest you've heard about Team Foundation System? 
So there's obviously different aspects of it. There's a, you're right, there have been two revs so far that were major. 2005, their initial release, 2008, which was, to be honest, it was really a 1.1 release. I mean, they didn't put a whole lot of grand new things in there. All the grand new things are coming in the 2010 release, which every, you're right, everybody's anxiously awaiting for that. Everybody's anxiously waiting for betas, everything, right? It's just so much cool stuff going into there. And it's been since the 2005 release, you know, we all, everybody's really, really excited for that. 2008, yeah, it was nice to get, but it was a glorified service pack. Um, and now, obviously, the, the next one's where all of our excitement really is for those of us kind of in this space. And you're right, it is very near and dear to my heart. That's been my life since, I guess, October of '04. Um, right. Once I first got my hands on the first installable bits for it, and it took me seven tries and about 40 man hours to get it to install, and you know, here I am now having done many customer implementations of it. So it's a good time. So what's the foundation server's role in this equation? Because Team System doesn't require foundation server, does it? No. Well, so Team System, and they made it, at first they made it really complicated, but I got good at explaining it for 2005, and they changed all the wording again. So in 2005, there was no product called Team System. It was a marketing brand. Okay. It's kind of like Windows Server System meant SQL Server and Windows and SharePoint. Team right. System, there was no product called Team System. Um it was more of a, a umbrella under which products existed. Now, in 2008, they started slapping. They thought, well, that was stupid. So they started putting the team system name onto some of the products. So there's two sets of products. There's the foundation server, which is what we're you know, going to kind of, really kind of talk about because that's my favorite part. And then there's the client-side tools, like the architect tools, the database tools, the right. developer tools, testing tools, all that kind of fun stuff. So you can use the client tools without Team Foundation Server, but I like to say that you're not really using Team System if you're not using the Foundation Server. And generally, not using, you should be using it first. So like Foundation Server, you, you want that in right off the bat. Yeah, it, it it is the it basically the collaboration hub. It manages everything. So you're not you're you're not really getting better as an organization if you're not actually managing what you're doing in some way or another. And that's what Team Foundation Server at its core is really good at. So can you do work item tracking and bug tracking and all that kind of stuff without it? No. Ah. First, no, you need the Team Foundation Server. That's where the bug tracking is. That's where the requirements tracking is. That's where the version control is, right? So as we all rapidly wait for source safe to just go away and die, that's, you know, <laughs> that's where the version control system is. Friends, don't let friends use source safe. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Friends don't let friends use source safe at all. But, I mean, it's not dead yet, no matter how much I try. Um, I, I can't quite kill it off, but eventually product support will go away for it. I, I'm hoping that the last release was the last release, right? Because every time they come out with a new release and the whole support lifecycle kicks in again and it gives customers the opportunity to still, you know, keep using it. Keep suffering with source safe. Is there a clean migration path from source safe up to, to, to foundation server? So there, there's two migration options. So one of the things that I, I, it's generally every time you ask somebody, well, do you want history coming over? Everybody's going to say yes. Right, so whether it's SourceSafe, PVCS, ClearCase, doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, if you want to switch version control systems, the simplest way is go do a git out of one system, break all the bindings, and just check it into the new one. You're done. Right, right. Your your code is migrated now. But a lot of people want that historical. They don't want to lose history. Right. But the way I position it is, you never lose history. History is still in the old system. Right. If you care about what happened three years ago, go look over there. Um, and if you do, if you take that approach to it, you can migrate from anything. Don't have to be source safe, whatever. For source safe specifically, Microsoft does ship a migration tool. They have a little command line tool that will actually go get every old version of a file in source safe and check it into Team Foundation Server. So it basically replays the history. Wow. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That just sounds like it takes a while. Oh, yeah. We've actually had some customers we did a trial run and the actual process to execute would take over a month running continuously. Awesome. 
Well, I mean, if you've got 10 years of history, and some customers do, right? They've been using SourceSafe since the mid to early 90s. Yeah. They've got tons of history, gigabytes of stuff out there. It takes forever. So you have to go through the, for, When you go that route, you're having to do test migrations, making sure you actually get it. You're having to go through and identify. You know, if you go look at somebody's SourceSafe system, usually it's got nonsense in there, right? There's stuff in there that nobody even knows what it is. Right. right? It's just there because somebody put it in there, and that person doesn't work here anymore. We don't know who, where they are, and you have to figure all that mess out, and then you're going to bring that all over to TFS. So why do you want that nonsense all being ported over? It's a great opportunity to just clean it, right? Just say, look, let's just bring over. And the way I like to say is open up your Visual Studio solutions, and that's it. That's what you need to bring over, right? You're not bringing mm-hmm. over necessarily folders. If you've got crap in SourceSafe, don't bring it over just because it's in SourceSafe, right? Bring it over because you need it, and you don't take SourceSafe offline. You just leave it out there and make it read-only, mm-hmm. right? So you make sure nobody can put anything new in there. Now, and uh, TFS is based on SQL Server, isn't that right? Absolutely. So the great thing about it is all those perf problems people have with SourceSafe, all the scale issues, like it gets corrupt. I have some customers, they have scheduled jobs to do the little decorruption thing. Um, since you're based on SQL Server, your only scale limitations is how much SQL can scale to, right? You can get terabyte-sized SQL Server databases. Yeah, so. we all know that. Well, and now we have that much more sophisticated backup mechanism, uh, and we could cluster it, like redundancy. Yep. You don't have to reinvent all that technology for source code control. Now, can you take advantage? Does uh, TFS take advantage of some of SQL Server's best features, like transaction support? And Yeah, so when you, it, it, I mean, you do have the, tr- the transactional check-in. So, for instance, if you think about when you do a check-in to version control, you're never checking in one file. Well, sometimes you are. You're checking in, like, four files, right? For one bug fix, you've got these four files you need to check in. And one of the problems with SourceSafe is those weren't really an atomic unit. Well, for Team Foundation Server, those five files actually get put into a queue, and there's a little job that runs through and actually does the check-in. Technically speaking, a check-in is asynchronous, but you don't really think of it that way. But that's how TFS implements it, though. To you, it's all you know, asynchronous activity. So those five things get pinned, and they either all get checked in or none of them get checked in. Right? So it's basically using the transactional SQL concepts of either putting it in or not putting it in, which from a traceability and basically managing that stuff, it's a whole lot cleaner than what SourceSafe was doing. Um, the performance is also there, and as Richard mentioned, you get all the scale issues. And the cool part from my perspective, since we do TFS consulting, is for things like backup and recovery, we don't have to consult on that, right? So we right. don't have SQL Server experts. We, do have, we have one guy that we pull him in as needed, but generally we walk into a customer and say, you guys already know how to do stuff with SQL Server. You know how to cluster it. You know how to maintain it. You know how to back it up. So just go talk to your SQL guys and have them do that. Yeah, follow the procedures you already follow. Yeah, they, they've got best practices. Well, we're not going to go tell them to change that. Yeah, sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. Is there reasons to have more than one uh, foundation server? Like, would you, would you separate that by team or by project? Uh, politics is the main reason. Oh, okay. So, well, so, I mean, you think about a large company, they have issues around budgetary things, right? So let's say you're a team and I'm a team. Well, I don't want to pay for your team to be using my server, right? right. So you run, that's where you run into having multiple servers. In a perfect world, an organization would have one server because that way I can do roll-up reporting. Right. If you have a server and I have a server, I can't compare us. I can't go see what kind of work you're doing versus what kind of work another team's doing because all that data is not aggregated easily. I'd have to go pull it from all the different SQL Server databases, you know, munch it all together and do something useful with it. If I get everybody on one server, I can actually do comparative analysis, but there are limitations of being on one server as well. We have to have some consistency of process or the server starts getting really dirty. Well, and this whole idea of what, I mean, what are you comparing? Are you comparing lines of source code? No, I could compare things like bug rates. Okay. For instance, right? So, which teams actually create the best, you know, the most bugs? Which teams um, generate actually get the most work done? Right? Which teams estimate better? 
Right, so all of this is just data you can track within your process. So I can find out, well, you know, Richard's team sucks. They keep saying they can do stuff in a week, but it really takes them a year for everything. And I can go look at another team, and they say, well, they, you know, they keep getting stuff done ten times faster than they say. What are they doing with all their time, right? So you can, you can start doing analysis across that and projecting things out. Um, you can start identifying, you know, where your trouble spots are in your system. So just if you're thinking, from, if you're thinking like I'm a CIO or I'm a you know, CFO and I want to just kind of get a feel for what's going on, I want, I want bubble charts, right? I want little red, yellow, green type indicators telling me, are we good or are we not good? So how, what kind of test points, like what are we measuring there to know? I mean, you, you mentioned bugs. This all comes down to the work items? Generally, the, most, of the, most of the measure points are going to be in the work item tracking system because that really indicates how you build software. Right, so how do I how do I document requirements? How do I actually document my tests? How do I manage my test cycles? How do I manage my defects, my change requests, my releases? All of that is generally workflows in the work item tracking system. You can also though look at the code. So if you're using the code analysis tools, the old FX COP stuff, that's part of team system. You can be automating that during your build processes. Team Foundation has an automated build system, so you can automate that. I can compare that as well. I could actually compare your compliance to our coding standards compared to another team. I could find out whether you're writing unit tests or not. You brought up automated build system. Does this uh, does it do continuous integration? With 2008, yes. With 2005, it does not. So hopefully, you know, everybody's getting moved over to 2008. It's been out now for long enough. So, um, what exactly does that mean? What what kind of tools do you get for continuous for the automated build for continuous integration in general? Uh, Oh, okay. So basically the way the setup is, is you go create a build script, right? A build script at the end of the day is just a script. I like to equate it to a batch file. It's going to go get code, compile code, do whatever else you tell it to go do. And you can tell it to do anything. Okay. Um, so as far as continuous integration, what you have is a schedule. There is, in 2008, there's a scheduling system. So you can basically schedule to say, look, I want this build to run every day at 1 a.m. Or, you know, every other day, whatever. And one of the options is I want to actually build on check-in. There's two different options, and it's actually pretty clever. So one, they have build on every check-in. So let's say the build takes an hour to run, and you check in a piece of code. Okay. That's going to kick off a build. Two minutes later, I check in a piece of code. Your build's still running. Your build's not, my build's not going to run until your build runs, but it's going to wait an hour, and my build just queues behind it. When my build runs, it doesn't matter whether 30 other things have been checked in. It actually gets just my check-in. So it knows oh, cool. the point in time that I did my check-in, and it builds that. So you don't have to worry about, well, what if a whole bunch of things got checked in since the, before the build got kicked off? That's one option. The other option is because if you have that situation, you might end up with a scenario where builds take days before they finally get into the queue. Um, they put in this idea of basically you can build no more often than X amount of time, right? Don't build any more often than every 15 minutes, every right. 30 minutes. Right. Yeah, but I'm thinking, how long does a typical build take on a big app? Uh, can't they take an hour or two? Um, we've had some customers that have 12-hour builds. Wow. Well, and that's and a lot of that's actually just the build. Now, where most people's builds start getting huge is when they start doing automated testing. Right. right? So even on a simple app that compiles in, like, minutes, so if you have an exhaustive set of unit tests, that can take, you know, 30, 45 minutes to an hour to run because, you know, you might be hitting databases. That's going to slow you down. You might be exercising a lot of code, doing negative checks, positive checks. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there, and that's where your build starts slowing down. So... As you get more mature from a build process perspective, you're doing more automation of testing, you're doing code analysis, and all code analysis can take forever to run. Um, as you're doing those things, you're getting better as an organization, but you also have to invest more in hardware. You've got to get more machines to do those builds. Right. Suddenly, uh, the build speed matters. Yeah. Because the whole point of continuous integration was to catch the bugs as early as possible, right? And always have a, always have a build that works, right? 
yeah. So basically, if you do, if you do something bad, I'll pick it on you. If I do something stupid, <laughs> if I do something stupid and I check in bad code, I want to know almost immediately. But I can only, I mean, compile is only really a small portion of the story, right? Great, my code compiles. Um, but really, I want to know is did I actually screw up my test cases? So the more automated right. tests you get in, the more valuable CI is. And you need Joel Semenyuk's show blame utility. <laughs> there you go. Like a, yeah, because a lot of people do blame reports. Who broke the build? Right. I mean, there's a, the whole little, I don't know if you've seen Brian the Build Bunny. It's this little rabbit contraption that's actually wired up to the build event, so you can actually get notification through this little rabbit um, that you broke the build. That's so <laughs> I cool. I love it. So cool. So, well, get a little siren that goes off in the dev. <laughs> Exactly. I think somebody actually, you know, those little those little um, missiles that shoot little Nerf missiles <laughs> on the tie to your USB port. I think somebody's actually wired that up with the algorithm to know where people sit. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so you could basically <laughs> shoot a missile at them if they broke the build. Right? That's great. But uh, the idea is that instant feedback and also the guilt. Right? If everybody on your team knows that you broke the build, you're a lot more likely to you know, do a git latest and, and compile first at a minimum. Right. Right. Making sure because a lot of people don't do that. Right? They just check it in and you know, well, you know they forget to get latest. Well, after you get embarrassed enough times, you start learning. Yep. Um, and we've, we've seen that. You here. don't want to break the build foolishly. Break it because you really did something amazing. If you break the build, I'll break your soul. Yes. <laughs> push down. The man is coming down on you. Yep. No, it's, it's, Sorry, it, it, there's so much. I mean, the whole, the whole concept of build is really, is, is really changed, uh, I guess, developer orientation towards quality. Yes. Because it was so hidden, right? People could suck, and it was really hard to find out that they sucked before. Now it's getting a little bit easier. So. Well, yeah, you're, we're getting into the part of uh, I'm looking at the results of your efforts immediately. Yep. Here's a question for you, Chris. Does team system as a tool dictate a methodology or a philosophy of development style? Okay. <laughs> um, does it dictate? No. Does it, uh, it? There's varying levels of support depending on what you're trying to do. Does it strongly suggest... Um, a no, well, there, there are certain things they imply, right? They do imply that iterative development is good, um, and there's some stuff in there that it kind of assumes you're going to be trying to do iterative development. Do you have to? No, you can do traditional waterfall. Um, so there, there is a lot of concepts in there. Obviously, things around like putting automated build in there implies you're, you know, that's a, you know, considered to be a best practice. But from a process perspective, you can make it as light or as strict as you want. That's the cool part of it. It is meant to be configured and customized from a process perspective by the end customer. Um, for instance, we, I, the, the one customer I love, I use them as an example, bless their heart, and it was one of my first customers, they actually don't track bugs. So the, wow. the CIO actually decided that in their organization, bugs were actually a bad thing because it was creating a negative relationship between the analysts and the developers. Oh. So what happened was is the developer basically um, would see a bug come in, and the developer would go, that's not a bug. That's what the requirement actually said. And the analyst would say to the developer, no, you misread the requirement. And they would get in this little bickering about who was actually to blame for it. So the CIO basically, actually, she was like VP of development, whatever. She came in and said, it doesn't matter. We're going to do the work, so let's just put it in as a task, and we won't call it a bug which pissed the developers off because the developers are very much into the idea of they want they didn't want to be blamed for it, right a bug you know they wanted to make sure they did their job right and it was the analysts that were messing up yeah. um, but it just kind of goes to show the system will do what you need it to do yeah it's interesting that you could function that way it, it, is this a tradition of Microsoft that they will always give you enough rope to hang yourself with um yeah and there and you can we've seen some people do some really silly things um, and you know, depending on how silly it gets, if you don't know the underlying ramifications of your customizations, you can get into some trouble there. But there are there are two out of the box software methodologies. 
So if you remember the old MSF, Microsoft Solutions Framework, which was right. kind of a framework for building software, they took a lot of those concepts and they actually built a real process. So MSF was never meant to be a process. It was really a framework. They actually built processes that they ship with Team Foundation Server that are based on MSF. They have an Agile process, so MSF for Agile Software Development, and they have one called MSF for CMMI Process Improvement, which is targeted at helping companies get to CMMI Level 3. Um, so obviously more rigor. It's actually right. the same thing as the Agile template with just more process shoved in there. Well, and it, yeah, it's funny how that – it's just a rate of iteration thing, really, isn't it? Um, there, if you actually look at CMMI, there's certain what they call process areas uh, that you have to make sure you're tracking. Because so, CMMI, to be honest, when you look at people think, ooh, that's very heavy process. What it's all about is the I, which is improvement. All it is is making sure you capture enough data during your software process that you can actually look at it and determine whether you're getting better. Right. right. So it's kind of the retrospective. You think about like scrum type things to figure out what, what did we actually accomplish. The problem with a lot of agile teams, in my opinion, is the simple fact that they don't have any data. Right. So they might be very agile and they might get something done during their iteration or their sprint or whatever, but if they're not collecting data, how are they really going to analyze themselves and get better? And that's what Team Foundation Server is awesome at, is just can collect data while you're just doing stuff. Well, and and that, I think that's very interesting because a lot of development processes, you end up with guys whose job it is to collect that data for you. I mean, it's part of what makes it so expensive. And then doing a lot of manual reporting off of it. You know, the the poor schmuck who spends his whole life in Microsoft Project. <laughs> yes, and that's a poor schmuck. I, I don't envy that guy at all, which is yeah. why you know, we're trying to get him out of that world, right? So when we work with customers and we're, we're helping them implement TFS, the whole idea is to have the level of process that people really need at companies. I mean, it's great to say that, you know, Agile's the way you should be doing stuff, but the problem is most real companies can't really do Agile. They need process. Um, and but the problem is you need to make it approachable because that's the problem. Process isn't bad. Having to do a lot of work to have process is bad. Right. So you, you want to have things like, I want to have requirements get approved by my end user. Why wouldn't I want that? Right. That's process, but I certainly want them to approve it. So if I can make it easy for them to actually mark that approval in the system, now I have kind of a trail in there so I can go back and say, that guy right there, he keeps approving the stupidest things in our system, which are causing us a lot of problems. And we can basically go back to you know Joel's idea of assigning blame, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, this is a feedback mechanism. I can't get better if I don't know what the consequences of my actions were. Absolutely. So the thing that's interesting to me is that a, a lot of folks just feel like every project is totally unique, and so there's really no way to compare over time across multiple projects that we're getting better. Yeah, and it, so the, the answer, obviously, is you can certainly compare. So the, you, you hit on some of the data points earlier. First off, you can there's the number one thing that everybody wants to compare with, and I, I will grant you it's kind of hard, is estimates to actuals. Right, because everybody, you sit down, you always estimate. Well, this is going to take this long to go do, and, and you, sometimes it ends up in a project plan, whatever. And at the end of the day, what you want to track is how long did that activity actually take, right? And then you can start comparing. And um, and and TFS doesn't have a real good way. Of, TFS is great at capturing that data, but doesn't have a good way of using it. So one of the things we're trying to do at Notion is to figure out what's the, the best way to use that for future estimating. Because what you want to know is, well, every time I sign something to Carl, he overestimates the amount of time by three x. Right, and I need to. It helps me know that in the future, right? If you work with a team that's been together for a while, your team leads know that, right? They know that when you go ask somebody how long is this going to take, they know how that person estimates. But the problem is, is that only works well if that team has been together long enough and they have that history. Right. So, wouldn't it be great if you could actually just have that as data in the system? So, if your team members were, you know, switching teams or going on different projects, you shouldn't have to have that background with a person to make those same types of analysis. Well, it's just moving that knowledge out of a guy's head and into uh, a document. 
Exactly. So that's one point of how do you get better over, how can we track, are we getting better over time, right? Are we getting better at estimating over time? The other one is, goes back to the testing concept, right? So are we actually getting better at writing our test cases and running our test cases? Because at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're testing software, you build the software, you build it, right? You do a build process, and then you test it, right? And the quality of your release, your deliverable, really tracks back to how good was the code and really how well was it tested. Right. So when you can start doing things like code coverage and find out, well, we ran all of our test cases, and we actually know how much percentage of code we are testing, um, that's an interesting statistic that you can actually track over time. You can compare that on projects. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, without whose support this show surely would not exist. You know, summer is peaking, and our friends at Telerik are working full steam. They've just released the Q2 volume of the Telerik Premium Collection for .NET, which is their biggest release yet. Packed with new things, It'll surely excite anyone who has anything to do with .NET development. Let's start with Silverlight and the introduction of the first commercial 3D chart on the market. It is developed as True Vector 3D, which guarantees swift performance and rich capabilities like rotation, animations, etc. Another major announcement is the Telerik Silverlight Scheduler, which is packed with tons of features even in the first version. Telerik's flagship, RAD Controls for ASP.NET Ajax, grows not only with four new controls, but also with new productivity tools. Take the new Visual Style Builder, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. And if that's not enough, they've added a completely new product, a free testing framework powered by Art of Test for automating Ajax and Silverlight rich internet applications. Since I'm short on time here, I can't enumerate all the new features and enhancements in the Telerik Reporting, Open Access ORM, and their Windows Forms products, so I'll leave it for you to check them out at Telerik.com. And don't forget to say thank you for supporting .NET Rocks. Percentage of code tested. Is this just about writing unit tests against each chunk of code? No, not only unit tests. So first off, yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna write, you know, a bunch of code, you should basically have some sort of testing for that code. Could be a unit test, but we actually at Notion we actually track code coverage on our manual testing. So if we sit down and having manual test script, and somebody's sitting there clicking on the application, we're collecting code cover statistics behind the scenes, so we can find out how much of the code is actually being tested. And let's say you know only ten percent is being tested. That means either we have code that's unreachable. Right, which happens. You've seen, you know, we've all seen code sitting in an app like, there's no way to get to this code. Yes, there's why no is this here? way to get here. It needs to be deleted, right? Um, so that's one aspect. And the other one is our test cases could be incomplete. Yep. Right? We need to write more tests. Right? And that data is useful, especially over time. Right? You want to start seeing that number, and you're never going to get 100% code coverage, right? Because there's like when you use, especially Visual Studio, it generates all that code. Right? You create a new Windows forms, there's like code all over the place, and some of it you're never going to hit. But that's mine. It's there. So you're not going to test everything, but you certainly want to test as much as you can. Well, certainly the stuff that your guys are working on. You want to know if we're working on this area of the app, those pieces are getting exercised each time we bill. Yep. Every time you build, every time the QA team hits it, um, and especially like if you're talking like business libraries, like class libraries, DLL type things, you know, business layers, data access layers, you can write unit tests and test almost all of that. The only stuff that really is hard are things like exception handlers. Those are those are just inherently challenging to write unit tests for because you have to have the exception fire in order to actually hit it. So you start doing all this little artificial nonsense to have the code actually fail in a lot of cases. And I, I'm not a big fan of that because it's to me it's more work than it's worth. But some people do that because they're going for you know very high levels of code coverage on their unit testing. 
So, Chris, uh, how much administration are we talk about when you run a team foundation server? Do you end up with a guy whose job is to keep that thing happy and alive? Um, you do need to have a team foundation server administrator. Actually, the the hardest part about administering team foundation server is that it is so low overhead. Um, so the there's actually a case study out there on the Microsoft website for Dell. It talks about how they did their team foundation server implementation, and I believe you have to go, you have to go research the case study. But they had, at one point had about two thousand people using the server, and they had like two half time resources allocated for administration. I mean, so it's insane. So for a smaller company, the problem you run into is people forget how to administer it because they don't do it very often, right? So when you it's add in a user, you have to go set security permissions or you go create more space on the server creating a team project. They've forgotten because the server, pretty much once you stand it up, it just runs. Um, so it's not it's not much overhead at all. And that's where we run into, that's, oddly, that becomes the problem because people forget. <laughs> so, Well, yeah, and, it, and I guess the only thing I can think of is adding new people in so that they can, you know, new devs in so they can get to the projects they're supposed to get to or, you know, shifting around their permissions. You're now on that project versus this project. And some space allocation. How much reporting? Uh, well, how much, really, we haven't talked about the whole reporting angle of Team System uh, or Team Foundation Server per se, uh, other than these sort of comparative reports. Like, what is it? How do you get at the reports? Is there a whole engine around that? Yeah, so it leverages, since it's built on top of SQL Server, like we were talking about earlier, it there's also uses SQL reporting services. Now, at oh, okay. the end of the day, it's just data in SQL Server. So there's the what we call the operational data store, which is where everybody works. Right? When you check in a file, it goes into a, an actual table called, uh, sorry, a database called version control. When you edit a bug, that goes into the work item t- uh, databases. So there's actually separate databases behind the scene. There's one for work item tracking, one for version control, one for build, uh, and a couple other ones that I can't remember right now. But then there's a little job that runs that takes that data, aggregates it, and pushes it over to the warehouse. So there's actually a warehouse where you can do reporting. There's a relational warehouse, good old-fashioned, you know, relational database structure, which is what I prefer. And there's actually one big OLAP cube. So if you understand what OLAP is and how dimensions and measures work, uh, good for you. I don't know how to do that. Um, <laughs> I admit it. It's there. We have we have a guy that when we have to do customer reports, we basically gave up having all of our people try to learn how to get good at that. So we give all the reports to one guy. And every time a customer asks mm-hmm. one, we're like, ooh. That person you're dealing with doing your installation, probably not the best person to write a report. Let's bring that in-house here, and we'll have somebody else do that. <laughs> but it is interesting that there is customizable reporting that way. So if you know, different companies have certain ways they want to look at data, they can. Absolutely. It's just, it's just, at the end of the day, an OLAP cube and a bunch of relational tables. So if you want to use Excel as your reporting tool, you can. You want to use SQL reporting services, which is what's defaulted out of the box. There's a bunch of reports that hit SQL reporting services. You can do that. Technically, you could use Crystal Reports. It's just data in SQL Server, and that's the beautiful part of it is you can analyze that however you want to. I mean, I've got some customers, they built, I was looking at one just yesterday, they built a dashboard in an Excel spreadsheet that actually pulls data out of TFS and basically shows them bar charts for bug rates, builds, requirements, basically gives them an indicator of what's going on in their projects, all just coming out of the underlying data. Right. Well, I mean, you... Of course, this all comes down to is the data being fed in useful? You know, right at the top of this, we talked about the garbage that's in source safe. I worry about garbage collecting in Team Foundation Server, too. Yeah, so if, if, if your need is to get more data about what's going on on your projects, one of the things you have to do is you need to define what it is you want to get right. and make sure that you're able to get it. So that goes into the customizable process concept for you to be able to go in there and say, look, if you know estimates and actuals are meaningful for me, then I need to make those required fields. People need to do them, right? So, for instance, I don't let you actually activate a bug unless you give me an estimate for how long that bug's going to take first. You can actually put things in there that are required fields or required at certain stages in a workflow. 
Right. right. So the work I'm tracking has that. So now you're sure that you start getting the data so you don't let people cheat. You don't let people put bad stuff in. Now, that's where you start um, reducing the ability to adopt it, however. Right. So the more rules you put in place around your data, the harder it's going to be for people to just pick it up and use it. Uh, do you ever see the situation where, or is this even possible, where maybe you've got like a, I don't know, a, a folder full of JPEGs or bitmaps or some, some kind of ancillary data that you use in the entire application that hardly ever changes, and so you want to check that in once, but in not every other time. Do you, it, does TFS have a way to do that so that you can include that as part of every build? And, and if, if it does, what do you do when it changes? I'm only slightly following you there. So basically, you've got a bunch of JPEGs. You're going to use them, let's say, for a website. So you check yeah. them all in. Do I, do I need to check them in with every build? No. So you just check in a version. So what the, what the build does is the build does a get from source control. And it basically gets a folder tree or trees. So it gets whatever's there, old stuff, new stuff, whatever you tell it to go get, it gets. So it doesn't do like a differential get per se. It just goes and gets everything. Okay. So once you check that stuff in three years ago, if it's part of the build get, it's going to still be gotten. So even if it hasn't changed, does it get rechecked in? Um, not, well, you would just never check it in again. The build doesn't do any checking. Oh, the build, the build doesn't just, determine which files get checked in and which don't. Correct. It determines what it gets and what it does with them. But it doesn't check anything in. You, as the user editing those files, whether it be C-sharp files or JPEGs, you are the person checking things in. That's good. Yep, you're just putting them in the repository, and the build basically does whatever the build's told to do with that. So, yeah, you'll have that kind of stuff. It gets a little bit more interesting. You're talking about, you know, how to handle branching and so forth. But um, Is there a way to do a differential? Like to say, this is the folder that is this project, and I only want to check in things that have changed. I only want to check in. You don't want to get things that have changed. Yeah, I only, I only, only want to check in anything that I've changed since the last build. Well, so if you haven't actually, I mean, so if you're doing a check-in process there, then mm-hmm. if you haven't edited it, you won't have it checked out. So you're only going to be checking in stuff that you checked out for edit. Oh, of course. Right? That's what I mean, yeah. check out, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, there, now, to be clear there, so where I thought you were going with it, and maybe that's where you thought you were going with it too, was there's also a differential Git, right? Yes. So by default, and this is one thing that's, that's hugely different than SourceSafe, which helps a lot. So let's say there's a gigabyte, right? I'll use big numbers just to make it, you know, very meaningful. There's a gigabyte of source code, and I do a right-click, Git Latest. Team Foundation Server is not going to go get the entire gigabyte. It's only going to get files that I don't already have the right versions of. Right? So if I did a Git 10 minutes ago and I do another Git and only one file changed, that's all the download does is one file. If no files have changed, it pops up a little message saying everything you have is current, leave me alone. It doesn't, doesn't say it like, like quite that abruptly, but you get the idea. Okay. So, and that's very valuable. Now, the build system, however, out of the box, does a full re-Git, um, right. which causes a lot of people with a lot of source code a lot of grief. Right, so if I do have a gigabyte, by default, the automated build server is going to wipe out every file it has on its hard drive and do the full one gigabyte Git. Um, so one of the things that's pretty common in customizations is to change that. Um, there's a little setting you set um, in the build script to tell it not to do that anymore. Interesting, yeah. That, it, especially on big pro, big apps, like large projects, that, that, that can be really hairy. Yeah, they did that because obviously from a cleanliness perspective, right, you know you're getting all the latest and great. You know you're getting everything if you wipe it out first. So it actually right. wipes out the entire workspace on the build machine. It's a process they call clean workspace. Um, and then they do a full reget. Yeah, I mean, that could, depending on the app and the resources involved, you could spend a couple of hours doing that. Oh, yeah, we had some, yeah, we had some, and also where the build machine is. So if the build machine's on the other side, so the theory, go back to, remember, we're talking about one team foundation server, right? So let's say I'm right. a global company. I may have one team foundation server in my main office, but I could have developers all over the world, and the build machines could be all over the world, 
Team right. Foundation server supports that. So now I'm running over the WAN doing a git. That's painful. Yeah, no kidding. And, and, and that's a whole other line of conversation here that we really haven't touched on, which is that whole remote usage thing. Is it is it is a typical remote developer or VPN to his foundation server? Or are there better ways? Um, so, to, so generally, yes. You generally need to be on the WAN in some manner. So if you're actually on a remote office, then you're normally on the WAN. It's kind of like hitting a file server. Right. Now, in the performance, it's all based on HTTP, however. So it, this is designed to actually work over slow networks, which, and it does a very good job of that. Team Foundation Server at its core is an ASP.NET Web Services application. So if you, if you think about this, when you go to check in a file, what's actually happening behind the scenes is that file is calling a web service and or sorry, the, the call for the check-in calls a web service and passes your file across the wire as a web service parameter, essentially. Right. Uh, and they have code that actually compresses and chunks it all up and all that stuff, and that web service takes it and shoves it in SQL Server. Right? If you think about it, we all could have wrote this thing. <laughs> it's, there's nothing fancy. <laughs> it's just ASP.NET Web Services. So it runs actually over HTTP. You can put it over any port. At Notion, we've actually got our team foundation server exposed to the Internet. Hmm. So just like you would expose Outlook Web Access. Right. Um, OWA, you could take that and you expose it to the Internet for accessing your exchange server. We did the exact same thing. So we have it running through a reverse proxy on ISA. So I can be at home without VPN, or I can be at a customer site, pop in my Verizon cell card, and connect up to TFS, and I can do check-ins, check-out, file bugs, run reports. Nice. Um, all, yeah, it's slick. And the performance is actually pretty good. Now, a huge Git still takes a while because i still got to transfer all the bits. Right? It's still dependent on the bandwidth you've got. Yeah, depending on the bandwidth I've got and depending on how much data, but the actual calls are very efficient, right? But at some point, if you say, give me a gigabyte, it's going to obviously take a while. But putting on my IT hat, how is this secured? When I set up OWA, I've got SSL certificates. And if I'm really anal, and believe me, at times I am, I can even force client certificates down so that I'm automatically identifying both ends of the connection. Yeah, so I don't think we have anybody that's done the client-side SSL, but we certainly are running ours on HTTPS. Okay. Uh, and it's just like, oh, you authenticate with your AD account. So we're using our Active Directory account, so when it challenges me, I have to have my AD account. I've got to type it in. Right. And it authenticates me against the system and routes me on through. So it's all HTTPS. There's no unencrypted data going across, which, of course, you wouldn't want. Some people obviously get nervous about it. I mean, like, ooh, we don't want our source code going across the Internet. Well, you have your email going across the frickin' Internet. You don't seem to care when you log into OWA. <laughs> I mean, right. I have a lot more private data in my email than I will ever have in source code, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the valid point here is that if it's encrypted with SSL, it's pretty well protected. Yeah, you're buying. You're exactly. You're going out and buying stuff on Amazon and giving your credit card and your banking. You're logging into online banking at Wells Fargo or whatever, right? right. That's all. You're you're comfortable with that, so it's, it's source code. Who cares? I mean, it's just as secure as everything else. It's more critical. Um, so once once I once I argue that, I usually win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and the problem, of course, with the VPN approach is that VPN connections can be quite unstable, and yep. that's just a nightmare with Outlook or with anything when you're trying to do anything with that's fairly file intensive. Yes, and it's it's slower, right? VPN inherently is is going to be a lot slower as well. So it's right. it's it's ideal. It's just why you know I actually run my Outlook just like in the same mechanism. Outlook has the ability to connect over HTTP, so you don't have to v- VPN in as well. And it right. actually goes through the OWA interface and through it from Outlook, and that's what I use that as well. And it's great. The performance is good. I even have it set up that way in the office because it would otherwise seems to get confused at times. But that's an Outlook tangent. Huh. I'm going to wander back to the reporting side of things because one thought that hit me a little while ago and I didn't bring it up was this all comes down to how well you write work items. Yes. Oh. I mean, more than anything else, I think if I want decent reporting, if I write a work item that says, write my app and yep. that's it. Right. I just think I'm going to get crappy reporting. 
Yeah, because you're going to only have one thing in there. What are you going to report on? So there's, there's two, all the data for reporting realistically comes from two things. It comes from the work item data and the build data. Right. Right. So build is where I'm doing things like running automated tests. I'm doing code coverage. I'm doing code analysis. The build data is very, very slick. Um, and the builds tie back to the work items. So one of the, my favorite reports out of the box is something called quality indicators. It shows you your builds, and then it, shows, it tells you for each build how many tests did you run against that build, how many passed, how many failed, how much code changed since the last build. Basically, code lines, you know, what we call code churn. Um, right. Lines of code deleted, added, whatever. It also then goes through and does your code, your, um, your code analysis and code coverage. Is all, it's all in this one little report, basically, because the idea is if you have five builds, which one of those is the best build? Right. Well, if they all compiled, right, and that goes back to how many did we test? What was the statistics? And let's say all your tests pass, but fifty percent of the code just changed. I'm not releasing that, right? I, just my gut check says, ah, uh, somebody re-architected something, and we're not real sure why. That's probably we need to let that settle for a bit, right? You don't want to see high code churn as you start nearing your release, right? So it's all that's your real source of the data. Now, one of the problems we see is because of what you said. If you don't do a good job with the work item stuff, you're not going to get a good value out of the reports. We see an awful lot of customers when they first adopt this, they don't even run the reports. They don't understand the reports. Right. They know that's what they're shooting for. That's what they were sold in the demo. <laughs> All that wonderful data, but they're not getting the value out of it. And a lot of that is is they really aren't implementing their process the way they would like. Now, going the other way, I sound like if I wrote a work item for every you know, method that I was going to write. Now I have tons of work items that probably don't mean much. Yep. Yeah. And so you end up with, then you can end up with overage of data. So, and a lot of, no, and people aren't, right? They're not going to say, okay, for every minute. And you, but some people will. So let's say I have a, a change request that goes in. And as we all know, one change request is probably going to make me change the UI, the business code, and the database. Right. I, I have to say, add a field. So that is essentially three work items, right? Go change the UI, go change the business objects, and then go change the data code or the actual the database. And I would personally generally track that as three unique work items. They could be done by different people. One of those could be done without the other ones. One of those could be checked in without the other ones, whatever. Um, and that starts giving you the traceability that you need, but I don't know that I would decompose it any further than that, but you could. Um, creation of work items. So a lot of people will basically complain about the fact that, you know, I don't want to go create all these work items. It isn't that hard. It's right-click, create work item. And if you don't have a lot of required fields, you're done in a matter of seconds. Right? I'm not saying you have to write an essay in your work item, right? You can write just enough information to say, okay, doing the business object, and you can link it to the higher-level change request or the requirements. So doing task decomposition is really not that hard. Um, but people are still resistant to do it because it feels an awful lot like work, and people are lazy. <laughs> But I, I have definitely found cases when I was working in uh, ALM systems or even mm -hmm. just using bug tracking systems as feature uh, creation where we create the initial item, which was sort of the, the use case or the I want you to be able to do this. And then we'd create dependencies on three, four, five other work items that were the sort of breakdown of here's the UI changes and here is the, 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 data, the business layer changes and here are the, uh, the, the database changes. And are you hypothesizing that was a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it, it's what we used to do. Do we do that still in Foundation Server? I guess it's sort of a hierarchical set of work items. Okay, so that's an interesting interesting uh, angle on that. So Team Foundation Server out of the box contains something called linking. It does not actually have hierarchical work items in 2008. Okay. Um, that is something they'll be putting. It's a high demand feature. They'll be putting it into in in future releases in 2010. Um, but the idea is you don't have a parent-child relationship. But what you can do is you can relate work items. You say this work item is related to this other work item. So, for instance, this bug is associated with this requirement. 
doesn't say which one's greater than the other, so that could be a requirement for the bug or a bug for the requirement. Now, you and I both know it's probably a bug for the requirement, because why would right. you need to find a requirement for the bug, right? <laughs> so you can then convey meaning based on the type of work that you're tracking. So if I have a requirement and five tasks linked to it, I would assume that those, that's a task decomposition for the requirement, and I can actually start analyzing that from a reporting construct. Sure. What, what we did, because the system is so customizable, you can actually add your own data fields. So if you think about databases for a second, we just added a data field on all of our work items called parent work item ID. It's an integer. It is the unique identifier of whoever I deem to be my parent. Okay. Make it a little text box, and we just type it in. So we have hierarchical work items. Um, we actually built a little uh, tree control um, that allows us to actually do a picker. Right? We hit a little button, and actually lets us find a work item, picks it, puts it in there. We have another control that shows the entire hierarchy for that particular work item. So you can go up the chain or down the chain and kind of click and open and, and do all that kind of magical stuff because hierarchical work items are that important to us. So we decided to build all that out for our own purposes, and actually we're actually about to start selling it too. So. Cool. Well, it, it just sounds like a need that you start out with this. Really, you do have the build my app uh, work item and then being able to break that down into to other pieces and create those that chain of dependencies that mm-hmm. ultimately resolves in the, the methods that people write. Let's talk about, since you said this is something that you wrote, let's talk about the extensibility of Team Foundation System um, in terms of the points at which you can get your hooks in there and do things. Okay, so there, there's there's two mechanisms. First, I mentioned before the entire thing is built off of web services. First off, for you know anybody listening to this, you should not be writing code against the web services. That's not supported. They will change them. They will break everything that you wrote. Okay. Um, with that in mind, there is one company that's exactly what they're doing with Microsoft's you know sanction, and that's a company called TeamPrize. Um, what they actually did is they wrote a client for Team Foundation Server in Java. So that you can be sitting there on your Macintosh doing Team Foundation server work, checking code in and out, filing bugs, kicking off builds, all from your Mac, your Linux, what your mainframe, if you've got a JVM, doesn't matter. It's actually really slick. Um, but they had to use the web services because the normal API that's supported is a .NET API. All right, I don't have .NET on the Mac, so that they weren't able to use that. They had to hit the web services, so they worked with Microsoft and figured all that nonsense out. Um, for the rest of us who are on a Windows platform, there is a full .NET API for doing everything. The client tool, if you ever actually use Team Foundation Server, the client tool you're using was built using the exact same API that you have access to. So you could do everything. If you don't like the way they did their pending changes window, for instance, which I have some issues personally with it, um, we're thinking about rebuilding it, making our own. To actually do our own check-ins through Visual Studio, because we know how to write Visual Studio add-ins. So we're like, hey, no, we don't like their window, we'll just make our own window, um, which is what we've kind of been doing. I mean, their server is phenomenal. Um, as far as the capabilities they provide, when you get to the client side stuff, in some areas we kind of feel they kind of you know took some shortcuts and slacked a little bit, to be honest. But the the server stuff is so phenomenal and it's so extensible. The API is not bad. It's got a huge learning curve to it, but once you learn it, it's it's pretty straightforward. They did a really good job. Yeah, and the team private guys, I think that's Martin Woodward. That is Martin Woodward. He's one of the the lead developers over there. Okay. And yeah, their stuff their stuff's awesome. They basically cloned. The Team Explorer client. Team Explorer is a client for Team Foundation. They basically cloned it. I think they even call it Team Explorer in the in the, the little UI. And they cloned it in Java, and they even have an Eclipse plugin. <laughs> so you can be an Eclipse developer <laughs> with basically the same type of experience you get in Visual Studio, where you can do check-ins and check-outs directly against the system, which makes the the foundation. Basically, the idea being is it makes Foundation Server ubiquitous for an entire. If you're a large org, you're not just .NET, right? You've got other tools as well, and they make that accessible. So I mean, I love their tool. We actually go help customers use it. Because I mean, you know we're out there installing Team Foundation Server, we want everybody using it. So we'll we'll bring their tool in as need be. 
Yeah, and it's a you have definitely a compelling idea to be able to. You're occasionally we have these projects where some of this stuff was written in Java and some of this stuff is written in .NET, and we really need to have the source code all land in one place. Yep, and that's and that exactly. And Team Foundation Server doesn't care if you want to put home videos of your kids in source control. You can do that. You can put JPEGs in there. You can put PDFs in there. It doesn't. It doesn't care. At the end of the day, it actually gets converted to binary and shoved into SQL Server. Right. So then, yeah. then it's just a matter of how do I get the client hooks into that? There's even one of the things. Um, there was a third party company called Teamplane, and Microsoft bought them. I think about two years ago, they had actually built a web interface. So one of the problems is people needed a, they wanted to have a browser-based interface because Team Foundation Server didn't come with a browser interface for doing anything, source control, work tracking, any of that. So this third-party company built this, and it was really cool, pretty pastel colors, but you could basically go in and file work items, edit them, transition them. You could actually go in and compare history of invert in source control. You could actually go see history of a file, do comparisons. You could look at the build reports all through a web browser. It was really slick, and Microsoft basically, I guess, thought, well, that's really cool, so they bought the company. Um, which is kind of interesting because I think the company had other products and they just kind of dismissed them. Just, I don't Ooh. know what happened to those other things. Uh, I always thought that the web interface for Foundation Server was SharePoint. So there, there is some SharePoint hooks, uh, but, the, but the SharePoint hooks are fairly limited. The, what you generally use SharePoint for is storing any kind of extra documentation, and people will also make dashboards out there. Okay. Yeah, out of the box, SharePoint doesn't actually do any editing of data in Team Foundation Server. That's what's called Team System Web Access or what we call TISWA. This was just more fun to say than a team system web access. And I thought the main thing that with the web access was being able to submit bugs without having to have the, the full client. Uh, so that that is the number one thing is be able to go basically edit work items. Not just submit bugs, but let's say I'm a I'm a manager in the, on the business side and I have to go approve requirements. Right. Right. I don't need I don't want to install Team Explorer to do that. I just want to go out to a website, find my list of work, hit approve, hit save, and be done with it. Right. So that that's the other one. And for bug submittal, there's actually another interface called WIWA, W-I-W-A, Work Item Web Access. One of the licensing challenges that they actually had with 2005 was if you wanted to do anything with Team Foundation Server, you actually had to have a client access license. It's a server cal model. And the problem with that was if all I want to do is I'm an end user and I want to file a bug, I have to actually be licensed. This is, That was in 2005. They changed this. So in 2008, they changed the license that says if all you want to do is create work items in the system and edit work items you created, you do not have to have a cal. You can do that for free. Problem was they didn't have a UI that just restricted that. So they created this new UI called Work Item Web Access. So that's all it lets you do. You can see work items you created, edit work items you created, and create new ones. And that, that is your bug submittal, change request submittal form. And in the end, it's all just calling the web services anyway. At the end of the day, it's calling the .NET API that then calls the web services, yes. Oh, right, so that's, right. Going okay. back to your, your point of extensibility, these are all just things that people wrote using the .NET API that was sitting there. Just like the stuff that we've done with our parent-child stuff, that is doing nothing but hitting the .NET API. We actually built a timesheeting system. So we have a little timesheet. So at the end of the week, you go in and say, I worked four hours on that work item, two hours on that work item on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I did this one and this one for these hours. You hit save, and it actually updates our own little database table, and it updates the completed work values on the work items for project status tracking. And this, again, just using the APIs that are already available you know, right there. Yeah. Uh, Chris, what are Team System Power Tools? Okay, so the Power Tools are essentially out-of-band releases. They are, okay, so you install Team System, right? Team Foundation Server Client, whatever. And that gives you a certain amount of capabilities. The problem is, and you're all well aware of this, Microsoft takes years between shipping full-featured products, right? You know, could be 18 months, could be 24 months, could be three years, whatever. And the interesting thing is, is the Team Foundation Server team, every single day, they are using Team Foundation Server. 
Right, so when they actually, the weird part is that they're writing a new feature for source control, they're checking it into the old version of source control that they... I love that. Three weeks, I know, it's just so cool, right? When they file a bug, they will actually file bugs against the bug work item, right? <laughs> because the, the bugs are wrong, so they file bugs against bugs, it's weird. Anyway, but at the end of the day, they have internal need of, to do with things. So they actually build their own utilities. Some of those utilities are so general purpose and so um, capable, they package those things up into what are called power tools. Right? They then release those out on MSDN. They're free. You just download them. In fact, the web interface that I was telling you about before is actually a power tool. It doesn't come out of the box. You have to download it for free. It is supported. All the power tools are. But you should absolutely positively install those suckers because they, they do some really slick stuff. Um, the new power tools actually have like instant messaging integration. So you can actually see in Visual Studio your team members and actually check things like, I want to send them an instant message, see if they're online. You can even right-click on them and say, show me everything that person's checked in. Or sorry, show me everything they have checked out currently. I'll give you a little list. It's, it's the power tools are slick. Um, and there's no reason not to have them. They are supported, but they are separate installs. So you have to go through those steps. But I, I adore them. We, we basically make them standard uh, installs for all of our customers. Okay. Cool. Is there anything that we've missed in TFS 2008? Oh, no doubt. I mean, the product is absolutely huge. I mean, when you think about everything that it does, the, the three key things, I'm trying to let me kind of run through that in my head. So you've got, obviously, the version control system um, provides, you know, that is, it is not source safe. I do want to be sure I, I very much state that. I don't want to give any preconception that it's source safe. It is a brand new system from the ground up. You've got the work item tracking system and the automated build system. Those are really the three cornerstones. Obviously, there's, there's integration with the reporting services. There's integration with SharePoint that we've kind of touched on. There's obviously the power tools that you can get. There's tons and tons of third-party stuff. I mean, I, I would plug third-party tools all day because there's some, you know, if, if you've got a particular problem, get out there and actually Google about the problem, and it's very likely that the ecosystem has already developed an answer to that problem. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time then. Uh, I think that's a show. Absolutely. All right. Thank, thank you guys for having me. Oh, of course. Thank you, Chris. All right, talk to you later. All right, and we'll see you next time. Dynet Rocks. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.